CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode of Speaking of Bitcoin on the Coindesk Podcast Network is brought to you by Nexo.io and Rejects Galactic Wrestling. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine rolls into its second week, the world has changed a lot. I'm not talking about borders or who controls the capital, but some of the underlying base assumptions that go into how individuals and nation states view and plan for the future. I'm talking about the givens, common sense, really the bedrock of reality as we know it. In that reality, the one from so long ago, all the smartest money knew that although the U.S. could and would wield the dominance of the U.S. dollar financial system as a tool to help it achieve its policy aims, the idea that it would be weaponized to the point of total financial annihilation of another G20 central bank and nation was absurd. And yet, in the last 10 days, we've seen exactly that. This action is bad for Russia, certainly, but it is in fact much worse for the ongoing dominance of the U.S. dollar system. As Matt Levine from Bloomberg put it, the U.S.-led global banking system may have been mistaken for a way to transfer values, but has been revealed in reality as, quote, a way to keep track of what society thinks you deserve, end quote. On today's show, we're going to talk about the fascinating things that the tragic war in Ukraine has revealed to much of the world. Although if you're a longtime listener, you've probably heard some of this before. But before that, introductions. My name is Adam B. Levine, and this is Speaking of Bitcoin. As always, I'm joined by the other hosts of the show, Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Hi there. And Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. Andreas Antonopoulos is out this week. So to kick things off, here are two quotes that I think frame the first part of our issue nicely. Quote, Cryptocurrencies risk undermining sanctions against Russia, allowing Putin and his cronies to evade economic pain. U.S. financial regulators need to take this threat seriously and increase their scrutiny of digital assets. And then a second tweet. Quote, I'm asking all major crypto exchanges to block addresses of Russian users. It's crucial to freeze not only the addresses linked to Russian and Belarusian politicians, but also to sabotage ordinary users, end quote. That's from Fedorov Mikhailov, who's the vice prime minister and minister for digital transformation of the nation of Ukraine. So we've got a couple of questions to address here. First, is Bitcoin a good tool in our current era for a nation like Russia to evade sanctions? And secondly, and probably more interestingly to me, do people, whether we're talking about nation states or individuals, have a right to transact? Or is this a privilege that can be revoked by whoever operates the system? Well, is Bitcoin a good tool for people to evade sanctions from Russia or any other country or even personal sanctions, which we may talk about later? But I don't know if that's the question. Like, is it a good tool? Is it being used? Yes. 
And as long as it can, it will. And that's kind of the point, I thought, from the very beginning. You know, there are folks who want to control the behavior of people through controlling their finances. That's also something that abusers do in abusive relationships, by the way. They control your finances. But anyway, governments, we're all in an abusive relationship with our governments now. And our governments are trying to, uh, you know, control people's behavior through finances. I mean, think Chinese-style social credit systems to debanking and deplatforming, which is rampant in the West. It's not just a new thing either. This has been happening for a while. I mean, think back to WikiLeaks, you know, way back in 2009. So the thing is, there are people who want to control people's behavior, people's speech, people's thoughts, people's ideas, what is acceptable to express or say or think through the control of money. And that is effective if they can pull it off. But most people don't want to be controlled in that way. And so they're going to look for anything that enables them to freely express their beliefs and their personhood. And that's one of the things that excited me about Bitcoin, because, you know, if we're talking about governments around the world, there's always governments doing things that some people are going to disagree with. And there's always people who want to control. And I always come down on the side of human freedom, even if it may not be popular with everybody or not everybody may agree with it. I think that it's just too dangerous to allow governments this arbitrary power to censor what people do and control what people do through controlling their money. But that is the world we live in. And Bitcoin is an alternative to that or cryptocurrency. And people are going to definitely use it, whether that's good or not. I mean, the question as preference leads to another question, which is who decides what a human right is? Is it innate or is it determined by the state? And by the state, we mean the state to which you find yourself within. Because Germany came to a conclusion democratically that existence wasn't a right that Jews had not too long ago, that it was a privilege, not a right, and that it was a privilege that they were rescinding. In China, being Muslim is something that means you should be in a concentration camp because not being in a concentration camp if you're a Chinese Muslim is a privilege and not a right. And so I guess before we get to whether or not countries should do this, we need to ask ourselves who establishes what rights are versus privileges. And is it the country you find yourself in or is it some greater system of either human rights or granted by whatever deity you believe in? Because before you even answer that question, any consequential conversation that follows that is irrelevant. One of the things that jumped out at me about these concerns about Bitcoin being used as a way to evade sanctions is that, you know, the Russian central bank holds about $630 billion worth of reserves. And more than half of those have been frozen as a result of these actions that have been taken. Now, if you look at the market cap of all of cryptocurrency, you're looking at a market cap of $2 trillion. And if you look at the market cap for Bitcoin, it's got a potential market cap. And remember, market cap is actually kind of a terrible way to look at what is the true kind of carryability of something like a cryptocurrency, because obviously, as more sellers emerge, the price will get pushed down because the buyers that need to support it at these levels simply do not exist across every single you know, Bitcoin that's possible. And then also, of course, every Bitcoin that has ever been mined, that doesn't mean that it is actually available for use in these capacities. So the market cap for Bitcoin, if we take this naive sort of metric, is only $804 billion by itself. 
So the idea that this could be used at all, much less surreptitiously, right? Because if you're evading sanctions, like you have to get that money out somewhere, right? And so if that's the case, then that means that you have to do this in a way where it's not going to be necessarily obvious that you are the one who's using it as a sanctioned entity. And so the idea that it could be a major factor around these types of things seems just kind of ludicrous on its face. Well, I think also your question presupposes that Russia had sanctions placed on them. First and foremost, the sanctions are not restricted against any of their major exports, right? It's not against oil. It's not against energy. And then if you look at being barred from SWIFT, you know, SWIFT is an automated clearinghouse, right? Like they still have phones. It's an automation of the correspondent banking system. All that means is they have to manually pick up the phone and ask for the transfers to occur. The fact that the ruble is going down is not because they're denied correspondent banking, which isn't the case. It's because a shit ton of people who invested in Russia are now divesting out of Russia and people with money in Russia are getting out of Russia, which is causing the currency to collapse. It's not because the Russian government or companies in Russia don't have access to a phone and don't net out outside of SWIFT. So you're saying that it's meaningless to remove them from SWIFT? The denial of Russian and Russian entities to use SWIFT, irrespective of denying their ability to sell any of their exports or seizing any of their assets or denying banks the ability to correspond with them, which would be to just add Russia to OFACT, is just all virtue signaling. It's just the same thing as saying like, oh, no, you can't use this automated system. You have to pick up a phone. It's an annoyance. It doesn't achieve any material financial consequence outside of actually sanctioning them. Sanctioning them would be putting them on OFAC. Sanctioning them would be seizing, you know, the billions of dollars they have in bank accounts outside of Russia. It wouldn't be, we're denying you the ability to use our automated system, so now you have to pick up a phone instead. Right. That's a good point. And yeah, even, I mean, I've heard a lot of politicians saying that they don't expect the sanctions to really change anything either. They're just, they have to do it. Well, I mean, sanctions have always been an ultimatum, right? Because they can't stop you from doing exactly what Jonathan said, which is just picking up a phone. Well, they can. America could add every Russian bank to OFAC tomorrow, and then it's done. That would be a sanction. What's happening is politicians who virtue signal use a word that doesn't apply to the thing that they do to make you seem like they're doing more than they are. So you think that this is all just kind of optics as far as like a narrative has been crafted which then has been bought into by many participants. And as a result of that, we're seeing the tail wag the dog here effectively, where, you know, Russia is having all of these impacts that you would expect that come from sanctions without sanctions actually being put on simply because the narrative is that sanctions are on. I mean, the Federal Reserve closely monitors every word that they say so that it's not misconstrued into causing a market panic. And you better believe when they talk about other nations that they're trying to cause market panics in, they use every word that they can misconstrue to cause a market panic. So I have another quote for us. Quote, gold is easy for nations to custody, but difficult for individuals to custody. Bitcoin is difficult for nations to custody, but easy for individuals to custody. And so the other side of the sanctions thing that I think that we've seen, and curious for your thoughts on this, at least this is a narrative that we're seeing, is that it's difficult for a nation state to use something like Bitcoin again because of the relative size of the market. But on the other side, it's being used effectively as a way for Ukrainian refugees and, you know, Russians also. 
to be able to protect their wealth and to escape with it effectively intact. Because if you are a small player where you're converting $100,000, you know, $5 million. Or less, it could be your life savings. Right, exactly. Like something that's, you know, not at the like nation state sovereign wealth fund level, that Bitcoin is big enough to support that. And the liquidity is sufficient to be able to do that even during sort of these times of crisis. And I suppose that brings up another interesting question, which is that if Bitcoin is or were being used in that way, does that mean that there's a moral imperative potentially to provide liquidity to nations that are in that type of situation to allow for their citizens to use it in this way? Yeah, this is like the flip side of sanctions on a nation state is like, what about the individuals, like the individuals who really are not involved in the war? except that they happen to be caught in it, what do they do? Especially if they're trying to escape and trying to preserve their wealth or, you know, have any wealth. And I think that you can't really uncouple those things. And so we have to err on the side of having this available for anyone who wants to use it, even if, you know, you could say that maybe some nations are trying to evade sanctions with it. Let's see, do I agree with that statement? That crypto is difficult for nations to custody, but easy for individuals to custody? Yeah, I guess I would agree with that, except, you know, like we're seeing El Salvador easily custodying Bitcoin, but they're kind of an exception and they're blazing the trail in a way. So, yeah, I think in general, I would agree with that. Maybe easy was the wrong word. Maybe the word should have been, is this viable? Because what you're talking about with El Salvador is a little bit different. Trying to use it as a national currency or a national level currency is a slightly different challenge than being a refugee who's attempting to figure out how to solve the problem of getting my money out of a system that's in trouble, frankly. And so Bitcoin, I think, presents some interesting opportunities there. All right, folks, we'll be right back. And after the break, we'll talk about implications to the US dollar dominated financial system. We'll be right back. Nexo is the go-to platform for all things crypto. Invest in the hottest coins out there and start earning risk-free interest of up to 20% APR, paid out daily. Need cash ASAP but don't want to sell? Use your crypto as collateral and receive a credit line at premium rates. Open your Nexo account by March 31st and receive up to a $100 welcome bonus. Get started today at Nexo.io. That's N-E-X-O.io. Rejects Galactic Wrestling League is a play-to-earn, turn-based fighting game boasting a unique collection of fighters, all with their own special moves, strengths, weaknesses, and artwork. With an inaugural drop on March 31st, there's still time to get in early. Find out more at Rejects.com. That's Rejects, starting with a W, like wrestling, dot com. So Russia is not the first country to be kicked out of SWIFT, the financial messaging service that's an important part of the plumbing of the U.S.-led financial system. North Korea found itself on the outs many years ago and suffered greatly as a result. Few countries needed to trade with the Hermit Kingdom, and yet it relied on exports in many crucial and even existential ways. More recently, the oil-producing nation of Iran and historic beacon of civilization in the Middle East faced hyperinflation after countries around the world were forced to choose between doing business with Iran or the rest of the modern world. Here, the cracks started to emerge in the strategy of the U.S. Although Iran was significantly hurt by this, the oil that it produces has quite a bit of value, and so some of its European trading partners hatched a plan 
that would allow them to trade with these sanctioned nations using what's called a special purpose vehicle, in this case, effectively a joint venture, that within its shielded corporate structure could continue to do what the U.S.-led system would not allow publicly, with plausible deniability and a pretty fair degree of success. But Russia is actually fairly different. This move has long been threatened, and Vladimir Putin, whatever you may think of him, is not stupid. He took the threat seriously and has long prepared, creating, among other things, a complete alternative to the SWIFT system, which, rather than being in U.S. hands, is Russian-owned and operated. Network effect is incredibly important, and the U.S. system has an almost total network effect. You want to use SWIFT if you're a nation, because everybody else already uses it. If it were not used, and increasingly so, as a tool to extract policy or political outcomes, it would be doubtful that there would ever be any meaningful competition to it. But because it has been used in those ways, we're now watching, I believe, the start of an age of competing currency systems. It's a moment that I think we do not relish, but which we've long expected, and it's an environment in which Bitcoin just might thrive. Something that I just thought of that came up, I heard that the Fed chairman recently said, oh yeah, there can be more than one reserve currency, but isn't that the <laughs> point of a reserve currency that there's only one, right? Well, it certainly complicates things. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we've been talking about this for years. Like, is the dollar's status as a reserve currency in jeopardy? Yeah, I think you can make that argument for sure. Can there be more than one reserve currency? I don't know. Maybe we're about to find out. <laughs> and Americans are going to, I think, be in for a shock because they don't realize, you know, how much privilege this confers. Can we talk about, like, just the idea of sanctions? What is the point of them? Like, I always learned that. I guess the Adam Smithian principle of like peace through free trade. If countries are exchanging goods with other countries, then ideas can also flow across borders. And if your ideas are good, they're going to spread, right? And cutting people off and refusing to do business with them or cutting nations off and refusing as a nation to transact with them, I think you could say that that probably just punishes the people in that nation and doesn't do much to the politicians or the oligarchs that are a part of it. And it just reminds me so much of like a click or something like, oh, we're not going to talk to them because we don't like them all of a sudden or something. And I don't know, it just strikes me as kind of silly. I think that in theory that you're correct, Stephanie, at least to my understanding of sort of the way the world should work. But I think that what we've seen is that the way the world does work is that increasingly it's important to be part of the majority because the majority has the power in many circumstances or at least attempts to exercise the power to silence the minority. And so if you're talking about, you know, like unpopular opinions on one side, it seems like that went from not being a thing 10 years ago to being a thing that, you know, again, even Joe Rogan, the you know, most popular podcaster in the world, you know, six times bigger audience than CNN at any given moment you know, that even he is facing. And so I think that we've seen that sort of the power to have an opinion, you know, this fundamental right to be able to express yourself and to hold opinions that are unpopular. I mean, again, like the U.S. government has recently come out and said that one of the biggest dangers in the world is disinformation. Oh, and you're a terrorist if you spread whatever they deem to be mis or disinformation. Exactly. And when we talk about disinformation in that context, we're not talking about things that are objectively false. We're talking about ideas that lend themselves to conclusions that fall outside of the official narratives, right? This is in a completely different world. 
I think that what we've seen here is the transposition of this idea now into the financial world. It was always true, but it's so much more true today. And we've seen examples of that from Canada to now this most recent one with the Russia-Ukraine situation. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what I was trying to get at before. Like, sanctions remind me of cancel culture on a national scale. You know, (laughs) it's like, yeah, okay, you can still say your unpopular opinion or do your unpopular thing, but we're going to put pressure on you and try to get you to behave in what we think is the acceptable, in what the majority thinks is the acceptable way to behave. And I don't know about you guys, but (laughs) that has not really worked too well for me in the past because sometimes I hold views that are outside of the (laughs) majority viewpoint. (laughs) I mean, we think Bitcoin is a thing that still is outside the majority viewpoint by a pretty significant margin. But again, that's the point is that there's a fragility that's inherent to that type of approach. There's an inability to explain the position in a way where when faced with the facts, you can simply acknowledge that hey, here's this opinion over here, and here's the reason why it's wrong, right? This ability to look at a position and to be able to articulate the points that make it an insufficient explanation of reality is something that I think that we've seen swell over the last number of years across the many things that have happened. And it's that fragility, it's that desperation to keep any alternative explanation that really sort of encapsulates, I think, the Bitcoin ethos. The reason why I became interested in Bitcoin in the first place wasn't because of its monetary characteristics. It was because it represents an unstoppable competition in the realm of currency. And so that monopoly of narrative, right, that we've been talking about, well, that's the US dollar system in a nutshell, right? You're talking about a system that can only exist as it does by nature of there being no alternative, because were there an alternative, That alternative would then force the system to explain, here's why things have to be this way. And if people have a choice, they always choose the choice that's best in their given situation. And oftentimes in monopoly systems, you find that the official, you know, answer, right, the only option that's available actually is a pretty shitty option. And it's only accepted because there is no alternative. And so whether you're talking about, you know, any of the things that sort of have happened over the last number of years. We've once again, over and over again, been faced with this, there is no alternative. We must do things this way because there is no alternative. And the truth is that there are alternatives. And the truth is, is that it's the fragility of these narratives that drive this push and this desperation towards this. I think that, again, when you're talking about financial repression and when you're talking about, you know, these systems and whether alternatives to them can or should exist, well... The system that you have works great, then there's no reason for something else to exist. But to the extent that it doesn't serve the purpose, why wouldn't you create competition? And especially if you're a nation like Russia, you know, where you're forced to create a competing system simply because the sort of dominant system isn't going to allow you to use it. Well, there you go. Right. What else are they going to do? Exactly. I mean, like, so again, in that world, it kind of doesn't even matter what anybody wants. It just matters that by nature of deploying the tools in this partisan way, you wind up with this outcome, which is that we're effectively going to have a world, I believe, that will have multiple systems based on sort of regional loyalties and power dynamics and things like that. And getting back to Bitcoin, 
We're talking now about two systems that are both biased, right? The Russian system surely will preference Russian interests and will be used in ways that are used to exact Russian desired outcomes. And on the other side, the U.S. is clearly using this system to achieve U.S. desired outcomes. And so you look at a nation like El Salvador, which for all of the problems that they may have with adoption, they may completely fail. They have chosen a neutral system. They have chosen a system where there is no nation of Bitcoin who is going to monitor transactions and protect you know, their interests using this monetary network as a cudgel. And so it's really, again, like in a world that only has the U.S. dollar system and where everybody uses that, there's no reason to use anything else because the friction of changing is significant. But in this new world that we are now, I think, finding ourselves in, it seems to me that Bitcoin, with its neutrality, presents a third option. And that third option will become increasingly powerful to the extent that these systems are used for partisan benefit. Yeah, you know, money has to be neutral. Otherwise, the power to decide what it can and cannot be used for is going to get abused. And, you know, we saw that in Canada recently where, you know, there was this trucker protest and they were protesting the vaccine mandates and the government didn't know what to do about it. They were occupying Ottawa for weeks. And finally, you know, Trudeau refused to meet with them. And he finally, you know, declared this a national emergency and gave the banking minister powers to freeze and seize people's bank accounts if they were found to be associated with the protest. Decreed to be associated. There was no court process. There was no court order required in order to do that. Right. It was a joke. They were doing things like looking at people's social media posts and things like this. So no due process. You know, it was just completely arbitrary. And then they were talking about making it permanent within a few days. And so what we saw was like basically bank runs in Canada. People were pulling their money out of Canadian banks because they didn't feel safe with it. Because I don't blame them. I mean, how could you feel safe if the government can just arbitrarily freeze, turn off your access to your own money or what's supposed to be your own money? I mean, it's almost like the concept of not your keys, not your coins. It's like, unless you have it under your mattress, I guess that's why people in certain countries keep money under their mattress, because it's like the only place you can trust, even though that's not a safe place to keep your money. And so, you know, people didn't feel safe with their money being treated as neutral and their money being theirs and their access to their own money being something that they could count on. So they did the logical thing and they tried to take back control of their own money by putting it into their own custody. And I think that is why, you know, the Canadian government pulled back on this whole idea. I think they still have some frozen bank accounts there and stuff, but they saw what happened when people lost confidence in the banking system and they said, okay, this is not sustainable. I've talked with a number of Canadians who have been sort of just floored by the conversion that happened and how fast things went tyrannical, basically. And just the shock at the idea that your business and your ability to transact could be completely destroyed simply because you had posted something on social media. Or peacefully protested. Of course, yes. Right? <laughs> You know, but again, like the entire conflict up in Canada without getting into it was another example of there's only one narrative that can be allowed because to the extent that the narrative is that they're peaceful protesters, for example, it puts a very bad light on the sort of reaction that we saw in terms of the seizing of funds and everything else. 
But if you characterize everything as terrorism, well, I mean, who's against, you know, dealing with terrorists, right? Right. Terrorists shouldn't have bank accounts. But we're all terrorists now. The term completely loses its meaning when it's applied like that. Well, again, it just continues to demonstrate the fragility of these different narratives and how if they're put up to sort of any sort of critical scrutiny, they really can't stand up for themselves. And in practice, they wind up falling back. The sad part is, is that many people are in very desperate straits in this current age that we're living in. And as a result of that, their ability to articulate themselves, their ability to call out sort of logical fallacies and just lies on their face has really diminished, I think, just because ultimately you need to eat, you need shelter. And that has been the sort of angle that we've seen these financial attacks come at, is attempting to make it so that if you disagree with the official narrative, if you disagree with the government, then you are not allowed to be a person who can live and have a house and have food and have money to be able to get those things. So anyways, we've gone far down a political path, relatively speaking, I think, than we typically do. And I think we'll draw back at this point. But it is sort of worth connecting the dots between what's happening today with Russia and Ukraine and the financial elements of that, along with what we've recently seen in Canada, which we have not discussed really at all. Well, you know, I just want to add, I don't want to speak for Andreas, but he has a talk that he has given, and I believe it's on YouTube about how money is speech, money is a language. And when you're buying something or supporting a cause or saving your money or spending your money or doing anything with money, this is an expression of something. It's actually speech. And we've talked about this on the show before. And so when you're debanking and censoring and sanctioning and trying to control people's expression with financial means, you really are controlling their speech, their language, their expression and their thoughts. And how is that compatible with happiness, freedom, human rights? It's not. <laughs> so I think that, you know, we should all be concerned about what's going on in the world, the folks who want to control us through controlling our finances. And thank goodness for crypto. That's what I think. Okay, folks, that's about all the time that we have for today. We're actually going to link to that talk in the show notes for this episode. If you have any questions, you can send us an email at adam at speakingofbitcoin.show. And today's episode featured Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, myself, Adam B. Levine, with music by Gertie Beats and Jared Rubens. Today's episode was edited by Jonas, and our researching producer is Scott Hill. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Next week.